Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. Have a special treat this week. I'll be talking to Carol Anderson. She's a professor at Emory University and a true friend of the pod. She's the author of, among other things, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, as well as One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Now she's going to talk to us about her new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. It's a heavy topic for sure. But I think you'll be surprised by how energetic and engaging she is. I am jealous of her students, for sure. So coming right up, Carol Anderson talking about the second race and guns in a fatally unequal America. Carol, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, having you back. Uh, this is the second time we've had you. It's, it's, it's lovely to have you back. Thank you. And it is great to be back. So I guess my first question for you is a really broad one, but I'm so curious. Just how did you get interested in the subject of the Second Amendment and as it applies to anti-Blackness? You know, my research, the the bulk of my research has been about African-Americans' rights, their civil rights, their human rights, their citizenship rights. And it was with the killing of Philando Castile in Minnesota. Um, And here you had a black man who had been pulled over by the police um, and following NRA guidelines, he alerts the officer that he has a license to carry weapon with him. And the police officer begins shooting and kills Philando Castile. So Castile wasn't brandishing the weapon. He wasn't threatening to use it. He was just alerting the officer that he had one. So the officer wouldn't be surprised when Philando reached for his ID and saw the gun. And he was just gunned down in Mm -hmm. front of his fiance and in front of her small child. Mm -hmm. And the NRA went virtually silent on this. I mean, virtually silent. And the NRA doesn't do silence. But there they were when a black man is killed for simply having a license to carry weapon, virtual silence. And journalists were asking, well, don't African-Americans have Second Amendment rights? And I went, ooh. That is one I haven't explored yet. Mm. And, and because in our current um, environment, the Second Amendment right is seen as foundational for citizenship. Mm-hmm. 
I thought, oh, this would be a really good one to explore. And it sent me hurtling all the way back to the 17th century. You know, so when I, you know, looked at the title of your book and, and, and started reading it, this idea of, of the Second Amendment and how it intersects with anti-Blackness, I thought I kind of knew what you might mean because I'm familiar with, for instance, you know, um, the gun laws in California having targeted the Black Panthers, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm familiar with how any law that <laughs> that interferes with <laughs> any kind of right is always dip- disproportionately applied to Black and brown people. So I have no question that the way the gun laws are applied here uh, disproportionately affect black and brown people. But what your book does is it shows how the creation of the Second Amendment, like from the beginning, from before there was a Second Amendment, was infused with anti-blackness. Yes. And that was my aha moment in this work, in this research, was seeing how fearful white colonists were of Black people and how they kept creating the architecture of control, the slave patrols um, that went into the slave cabins to to look for weapons, to look for books, Um, the militia that was there to quell massive slave revolts, to keep Black people from being able to fight for their freedom. And the uh, the gun laws, the laws that said that um, in the enslaved as well as free blacks could not have access to weapons. Um, that kind of fear was just pulsing through. And what I also saw was, again, I go back to your previous questioning of how we think about the Second Amendment now. Part of the way we think about it now is this kind of hallowed ground of of the militia as being this incredible force that fought against the British and fought for American liberty and American democracy. Mm-hmm. And wow. <laughs> and and Spoiler alert for people that haven't read the book. <laughs> Militias, not so great after all, right? Not so great after <laughs> all, right? Um, so you have this thing where George Washington is just beside himself because sometimes the militia would show up, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they show up and then they'd stop fighting and then they take off running. I mean, it's like, how can you have a battle plan when you cannot rely upon your forces to be where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there? Um, and 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 so they could not rely upon the militia to to take on a professional army. Yeah, let's let's and just we, stop for a second. And, and I want people to drill down on this a bit, because we do have this, especially I think, you know, white Americans have this idea like, oh, the noble colonists who rebelled so brave, you know, took up arms against the British. And that's why we're free today. Again, not so much. Right. Not so much. They, not they were, so much. They had trouble rounding up the necessary numbers of white people they right. would need to fight right. the British. Right. And, and because the, the idea of arming black people was already, again, pre Bill of Rights, pre revolution, just but in the you know height of slavery, this idea, you said it in the same breath, books and guns, same same kind of weapons in the eyes yes. of white people. So the idea of hell having, you know, black people help fight the Revolutionary War, which they needed to do <laughs> in order to have the numbers, right, right. was right. just resisted so heavily. Oh. oh, I mean, so in 1775, 
they banned uh, Black people from joining the Continental Army, just banned them. But the British are kicking some USDA grade A prime beef butt mm-hmm. and, 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 and they can't get enough white men to enlist in the Continental Army. I mean, they are so far below their, their quota standards for what they need to take on the, the most powerful fighting force out there. And, and so finally, in two years later, they relent. Um, so you start seeing in the north where they're like, OK, fine, we are going to let enslaved men join the Continental Army and we're going to promise them their freedom for being able to fight in this army, for being willing to fight in this army. And so you had black men joining the Continental Army. To, and it, was a, it became a fully integrated army. Mm. So you didn't have black units and white units. You had a fully integrated army and they fought. There were like 5,000 black men in this army. Mm. And it was, it was so incredible, so strong, so powerful, so effective that the British were like, dang, let's go. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, but with a British accent, I can't do dang oh, I won't, in a I, British accent. I, I won't make you. We'll just say, well, well I liked it better in your accent. Dang. Let's just say <laughs> yes. dang. And that's, that'll work. And, and that's especially interesting because the British were already abolitionists, right? Like, well, the, the British were moving toward abolitionism. Right. And and one of the things that you saw happening in this war that freaked the colonists out was that the Earl of Dunmore, who was the royal governor of Virginia, had promised uh, the enslaved men who who were on the plantations of the rebels that come fight for the king and you will be free. Right. And, so so this raises a question. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the deciding factor there? I mean, if I, because I, it seems like if you're an enslaved person, mm-hmm. the British are there, they haven't enslaved you, right? Just, mm-hmm. and the Americans are there, yeah. and you and yours would not be in the colonies were it not for them enslaving your family. So when you choose who to fight for, <laughs> what can you talk about that a little bit? Because there's a part of me that feels like how why would they trust the Continental Army to let them and, have their freedom after they fought? It's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and really, this was um you see how powerful the quest for freedom is mm. among the enslaved that they're like, who's going to offer us our freedom? How do we get free? Mm-hmm. Because you had had a series of revolts, uh, slave revolts prior to the Revolutionary War. You had had uh, black folks fleeing, going into maroon um, uh territories where they were setting up their own communities that were in the swamplands to be almost impenetrable to whites so that they could be free. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this pronouncement pronouncement from the Earl of Dunmore was like uh, music, Mm -hmm. music, and tens of thousands fled to the British. Yeah. Fled to the British. And we can't blame them. I mean, like, again, as much as the founding myth of America is a part of my upbringing as anyone's, that seems like a pretty easy piece of calculus to make. 
right? I mean, and 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 you had uh, folks like Benjamin Franklin going, "Wow." They're getting ready to turn our Negroes against us. <laughs> well, right? who did what there, really? You know, who turned them, I would right? say. <laughs> and, 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 and it's this, this, this kind of framing because that framing also is what would continue to, to feed into the anti-Blackness, mm-hmm. that, that Black people could not be trusted, that, you know, they got the slightest little wink and nod from the British and woo, they took <laughs> off running in our hour of dire need. Um, but during that war, what you saw were that the Black men who fought in the Continental Army, they had a lower AWOL rate uh-huh. than whites. And they fought for longer periods of time than white men. So, but all of that got erased and it was just, look at all those black folks fleeing. See, you can't trust them. They're, they're, they're untrustworthy. They're no good. They're dangerous. They're fighting against us. For one thing, I also want to acknowledge the bravery of anyone who's going to choose to um, try to escape enslavement and go to fight for the British. It's not just... They made a choice. Oh, am I going to be? It's not just, oh, am I going to stay here or go fight for them? It's an incredibly risky choice to say, I'm going to make a take this incredible risk. Because it's not just like, who, oh, who am I going to fight for? You know, decisions, decisions, right? It's making this incredibly dangerous choice. Absolutely. And the precarity of Black life is for me one of the the salient points that courses through this book, um, that Black folks would continue to fight for their freedom, would continue to fight for democracy, would continue to fight for justice. But in that fight, how they fought and what they fought for made them absolutely vulnerable to the violence that would rain down on them, the state violence that would rain down on them, the state sanctioned violence that would rain down on them. The precarity of black life uh, courses through this book because it courses through American history. So all those thousands of of, of, um, enslaved people who chose to join the British were taking, were already taking their lives into their own hands as it yes. were, I mean, f- uh, uh, finally being able to take their lives in their own hands rather than someone else's hands. But this incredibly dangerous choice to even try to escape to go fight for the British. What incredible bravery there. And then let's talk about the Black people that fought for the Continental Army because, mm-hmm. damn it, Carol, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I assume there have been some writings or, or narratives from these people where we get some kind of insight into the choices that they made? You know, and, you know, it's, there is a, as again, a precariousness there. Um, And so I'm going to go to the point after the war. Okay. Where, um, you know, so they were offered their freedom for fighting. But then you get a court case in Virginia in the early 1800s that says, yeah, 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 whatever. If they're <laughs> black, there is an automatic assumption that they are enslaved and they have to prove otherwise. So think about that. You have fought for this nation's freedom and you still have to prove that you are not enslaved. Well, and that that's the, the story pres- that continues on through today. 
<laughs> I mean, yes, you have to prove. <laughs> yeah, you have to prove that you are not dangerous. You have to prove that you did not provoke the violence that came raining down on you. Right. Because because as black as the default threat in American society, that is what has helped feed this sense of precarity, the reality of the precarity of black life. I'm I'm going to just try one more time with this choice. We, okay, so uh, the colonies could not have won the revolution without the black people that fought on their side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was no reason for the people who made the choice to fight with the the white soldiers of the Continental Army. I mean, I feel like what a to call it a leap of faith is is not enough, right? Um, I just am curious, like I said, I'm curious, like to, to decide to do that rather than f- either do nothing, you know, I mean, that's a choice. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a valid mm-hmm. choice because again, every choice that a black person made at this point in time is in precarity, right? Like there's yes. no safe choice to escape is dangerous. To stay is dangerous. To fight for the Continental Army is dangerous. So well. those that fought for the Continental Army, do we know why? There was a sense that they could be free. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a sense of the language of of democracy, Mm -hmm. the language of a a new kind of regime um, that, you know, we hold these truths. Um, There was this this sense of freedom. Freedom Mm -hmm. is a powerful elixir. Um, and the sense that the people who had once held you in bondage, held you and your family in bondage, were saying, Lord, we need you now. God, we need you now. We need you now so desperately that if you come fight for us, you will be free. Carol, that gives me chills. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, that that has been the promise and the fight for so long. Um, if you fight in this army for democracy, for American values, you will be free. And what we know from Black men in the military up for a long, long, long span of time, that was not true. And that's the thing that that... Yeah, that gives me like I have a physical reaction to that. Um, the bravery to take that chance, mm-hmm. um, that expression of the highest ideals that the revolution was f- supposedly fought for, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, so one of the things that I continue to, to argue is that our freedom struggles have been on that aspirational plane Mm. of what the United States says it is. Um, Not what it actually is, but what it says it is. And that is where you have seen these incredible freedom struggles of people fighting to gain access to those aspirations, to that democracy, to that freedom, to that equality, to that justice. It's it's one of the arguments of the 1619 Project, that it's people of color, Black people especially, that have kept America honest, as it were, or tried to, right? 
Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Ooh, tried, um, so, but that, and that's tried. that's the other thing that that, that that breaks my heart to hear you articulate this powerful belief that these formerly enslaved people had. They bought our bullshit. Speaking as a <laughs> white person, right? Like they believed what we were telling them because I, on some level, it's true, right? And then to have it. As you said, like right after the war, a court case finds you're a slave until you prove you're not. And then right. after the First World War, those oh. those veterans are oh. lynched and oh. tortured and subjugated. And then after the Second World War. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And then after and then after Vietnam. I mean, like it's just this and we can argue about whether or not the Vietnam was necessarily fought to uphold American values, but um, this idea that we will, we will, and let's get to the real point of your book, right? The Second Amendment, we will, we will take up arms. We, the people who were brought to this land mm-hmm. to, in chattel slavery, mm-hmm. we will take up the guns that you have given us. We will fight for you. We will not turn them on you. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least not right now, because yeah, right. you've told us <laughs> we need to do this. And they keep coming. This they it keeps coming back to that. It keeps coming back to that. Right. And and the the we will take up arms. And so part of what we also see in this is the exigencies. So that when whites need black folks to bear arms, then there is a a loosening in that that um in that boundary Mm -hmm. so that during the revolutionary war and, and you couldn't get enough white men to enlist in the continental army and the British are like coming. I mean, the British are coming. And, and there's this sense when you think about this, the Americans were traitors to the British crown and we know what happens to traitors. Mm -hmm. So this is the, oh my God, uh, we can't get enough white men. What are we going to do? And, it's, and when you think about it as well, um, in South Carolina, when the British, when the war stiffened up north and the British said, we're going to hit the soft underbelly, we're going to go south. Mm-hmm. And so they send basically a doggone near armada of 8,000 troops uh, to the south. They hit Georgia, Georgia, Georgia collapsed like that. Uh, General Howe was like, I don't even know what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then the British were like, we just whooped your butt. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they're going to head toward South Carolina. They're coming to Charleston. Mm-hmm. And, and George Washington sends his, his emissary, John Lawrence, a prominent son of South Carolina, to beg the South Carolina government to arm the enslaved because South Carolina had deployed the vast bulk of its white men to control its enslaved population <laughs> as part of the militia. Right. right? Yes. The militia. Uh, uh, the yeah. militia. And and there were only 750 available white men to take on this mass force coming from the British of 8,000 troops, only 750 white men available. And John Lawrence is like, you don't have enough white men to stop that. Mm -hmm. So you've got to arm the enslaved. And the response from the South Carolina government was, we are horrified. 
that you would ask us to do something like that. This is alarming. This is appalling. And we don't even know if this is a nation worth fighting for. <laughs> See, so this gets to the question that that came to me fairly quickly mm-hmm. as I was reading the first part of your book. With with friends like that. <laughs> <laughs> Do enslaved people need enemies? Um, meet when what I mean there is, I'm just gonna. This we know how the story ends, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually, the enslaved people are armed. Eventually, we win. Eventually, you and I are here speaking with American accents as fellow citizens of the United States. When I heard the vitriol expressed by Southern, um, colonists still, right, about Mm -hmm. arming enslaved people. When I heard even, I mean, you know, Northerners were not not racist, right? I mean, they were still pretty racist. Oh, yeah. And and then at the same time, you have the British saying, come on over, you know, we're not going to keep you, we're not going to enslave you. And it was so close, right? They were, the the America was on the, the colonies were on the edge of losing this whole thing. Yes, yes. I have to ask the counterfactual, what do you think it might have been like for, for black people if, if, let's say, the South Carolinians were just so far up their own asses, <laughs> they couldn't see it straight to have some help fighting the British, and the British had won? That is an incredible counterfactual. I know, but um, I have to ask. I know it's not necessarily right. useful, but. You know, and I think it would have been something akin to Jamaica, huh. where you would still have British rule and you would have the lure of the profits that come from, from these vast plantations. Um, and you would have the language that would. Um, justify it uh, via racial hierarchy. Um, what? It, 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 Good. Yeah. So what I hear yeah. you saying is anti-blackness is a hell of a drug and <laughs> that it's going to win out a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily to say, so yes, the Br- Americans were pretty horrible. British were pretty horrible. British for a second there seem less horrible. But this language and these ideas that are bubbling up mm-hmm. in the colonies. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a reason why the enslaved people chose to go ahead and fight against the British. That language was powerful. And we really see the power of that language with the Haitian Revolution. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you to tell us about the contagion of liberty. Yes, yes. So why don't you tell us about the Haitian Revolution and the contagion of liberty? And so the the Haitian Revolution began in 1791. And remember, you had the French Revolution. Haiti was a French colony. And the French Revolution began in 1789. And you had uh, King Louis XVI, uh, who was beheaded um, and, and deposed, <laughs> In that, and so you had this battle happening in Haiti over who would control this incredibly rich colony. You had a battle between whites and mulattoes, and you had a vast 
black enslaved population. And so while the whites and mulattoes are battling each other, the enslaved looked up and said, oh, we're getting ready to get free. Mm. And they took it. In 1791, they brought it. Toussaint Louverture um, and the, 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 the Haitians rose up and just started fighting for their freedom and to get rid of that colonial structure that had imposed an incredible brutality on the, the Haitians. And, and they had talked in these revolutionary terms of Egality and fraternity, so equality, brotherhood, but what they also brought that what in liberty, but what they also brought was a sense of racial equality, something that wasn't just about the kind of civil liberties that the U.S. talked about, but in fact a racial equality. They made that central to how they envisioned freedom because it had been racial oppression that had kept them down mm-hmm. and they fought. And I mean, so they took on the Spanish because the Spanish came up in there and, 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 the, and the Haitians were like, son, you don't know my name. You don't <laughs> want some of this. <laughs> and so and so then the British rolled up and they're going, but you know, we're the British. And they were like, no, you, you would be dead. That would be your name. Um, and, and, and so the British talked about it was like fighting for a cemetery mm. with the, the number of dead Brits because of how the Haitians fought. And so then Napoleon rolled up in there and he was like, oh, I got this. And he came in with, you know, he brought uh, he it wasn't him. He sent his brother in law and with a fleet and like tens of thousands of French troops. And the the key was uh, guerrilla warfare, Mm -hmm. where you don't try to meet this army one on one. Instead, you hit them, you destroy their means for existence. So a scorched earth policy. Um, And then they said, we wait for the rains because with the rains comes yellow fever. And the the fighting and the yellow fever just destroyed uh, the French troops. They lost, they had an 80% casualty rate. Oh my God. Wow. So, yes. So the uh, Napoleon had to just go, okay, uncle, you win. <laughs> you win. Um, and, and so you begin to think about what this means. Haiti is not that far from the United States. And so having a, a successful slave revolt where they have fended off and destroyed three European armies. It upends that whole sense of white supremacy, that whites are absolutely invincible, and that black people are docile and are and are subject and are here for subjugation, here for nothing but labor. They're not here for freedom. And, and so the ideas coming out of Haiti are just, you know, um, George Washington called them lamentable to see blacks in this state of revolt. Um, and, and Thomas Jefferson was like, like, (laughs) Oh Lord, Lord, they're coming. They're coming. We have got to keep this kind of evil from getting over here. And the, and Um, the, the irony or I don't know if it's called right called irony, but, but there's this echo chamber of, of revolutionary ideas basically happening. Right. Because yes. 
the Haitian Revolution built upon the ideas of the French Revolution and the American Revolution, right? And then that echoes back into the U.S. and white people are scared shitless. Like, oh my God. you started oh, like, it, guys. But And they were like, <laughs> yeah, they were like, okay, the wrong people are getting these ideas. <laughs> these ideas have a whites only sign on top of them. I don't know what made you think you could be free. Right. I don't know what made you think that, that this was available to you. And it's at this point in the book where I, I study American history. Okay. Mm-hmm. Full disclosure, but I studied it, uh, you know, in America. Um, so I did not know this, which is that you can make an argument, and you do make this argument in the book, that the Bill of Rights itself, which, of course, written uh, around the same time as the Haitian Revolution, right? They're sort of going on at the same time there. In some ways, was designed, designed to put that whites up only sign, Right. Yeah, I really look at that with the Second Amendment. Yeah, um, the Second Amendment yeah. specifically, like in a weird yeah. way, not so weird because you're going to explain it. Yeah. But it, they, it was these the, what we think of as this, you know, <laughs> sacred, you mm. know, list wouldn't exist if it weren't for the South demanding some kind of carve out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So, you know, we had the Articles of Confederation coming after or coming during the war uh, for independence. And then those Articles of Confederation were like the governing rules when the U.S. won. But the Articles of Confederation were just that. Mm-hmm. They, they were, they, it was a confederation. And so each state was acting like its own little thing with its own money, its own foreign policy, uh, tariffs between their borders. Stuff wasn't working. Mm. The thing was getting ready to collapse. And so there's a group that gets together to to revise the Articles of Confederation. And James Madison is like, nah, this thing isn't revisable. We need to start from scratch. <laughs> um, and, and they join together and they get into Philadelphia and they start drafting this constitution that has a much stronger central government. One of the things that Madison does is he puts control of the militia under the federal government. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he does that because of the weakness that the militia showed during the war. Because <laughs> he's like, okay, they need some real serious training. We can't have you turning uh, tail on us. We need to right? like, we need to, right? to to smack you around a bit, get you under control. You can't just go off to your farms, you know, when yeah. things get tough. So right. we'll we'll take control. And again, for people that are following current Second Amendment debates, this is kind of an important thing to know. Right. It, it, it really <laughs> is. I mean, this is the piece that gets obliterated. Right. Is that the the role of the militia was that that militia turned tail. That militia, um, even when they were winning, like at Bunker Hill, couldn't close the deal because the 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 folks who were fighting just were like, OK, I'm tired of fighting. And they were going home. And the group of militia men that were supposed to replace them were like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so it, it, it just so Madison puts control of the militia under the federal control, under the federal government. Right. And when it's time for ratification, then um, ratification is moving along, moving along, moving along. And then it stalls like in New Hampshire. 
And Virginia hasn't signed on either. And Virginia is one of the big states. And so Washington sends Madison down to his home state of Virginia to get into that constitutional ratification convention. And he runs into the buzzsaw of the anti-federalist of Patrick Henry and George Mason. Mm. And they start laying into him. They are like, this militia thing. Now, you know, good and doggone well that the North detests slavery. How dare you put control of the militia, which is our only defense against a massive slave revolt? How dare you put that under the federal government? That includes like folks from Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. You know that they would not call in the militia to protect us against a slave revolt. We will be left defenseless. I just sort of have to fast forward to the current debates about what people who believe that the Second Amendment is about individual gun rights say. This is such a. (laughs) No, it's not. It's like because what there's and also this this veneration of the militia. Right. Like which, again, is sort of built up. And I don't think it's just like outright racists who say this. It's sort of just part of the the culture of our the history that we are kind of absorbed into mm-hmm. is that our brave militias fought for freedom. Mm-hmm. And indeed mm-hmm. today, the reason why we have a right to a well-regulated militia is in case those, some assholes come and try to take our liberty. Not all right. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, but see, but this was the other component in that, is that right before the Constitutional Convention, there was Shays' Rebellion. Right. And Shays' Rebellion was in 1787. And you had a group of white men who were angry at Massachusetts taxation policy. Um, and they decided to basically attack the Massachusetts government. Mm. And they were taking over courthouses because there was seizure of land for non-payment of taxes. And so the way that you you stop that mess is that you go you take over the mechanisms of the law that allow for that seizure. So they're taking over the courthouses and then they're going after the armory in Springfield so they can get more weapons to really bring it. And so the Massachusetts government is like, help, help, <laughs> and calls in. You know, so the Massachusetts government tries to call in the militia to to put down Shays Rebellion and the militia like, nah, I'm not doing that. And you actually have some militia men who actually go and fight with with Shays forces. Right. And so Boston merchants have to hire a mercenary army of 4000 men to put down Shays Rebellion. That thing is what is hanging over the head. I mean, it is there like Banquo's ghost. It is this really daunting shadow as they're writing this language about the militia. The militia is not reliable. And when it, yeah. Except when they're there to boom, go after formerly enslaved people. <laughs> like, oh, d- the drop militia, that mic. <laughs> the militia is not reliable in the place where we're sort of kind of, you know, uh, in a very propagandistic way taught to believe that they're reliable, which is, you know, mm-hmm. stand up against oppression. They're incredibly reliable on the side of oppression. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. They are there. So it was Stono's Rebellion in 1739 in South Carolina, where you had uh, black folks rise up and try to get to Spanish Florida because there wasn't slavery in Spanish Florida. And and 
the the South Carolina militia was like, oh, no, the last thing we need is black folks thinking they can just go south and get free. Um, And they hunted them down and their militia laws, for instance, required men, white men to carry guns at all times. And so Stono's rebellion happened on a Sunday. So these white men were in church with their guns and the, the alarm started ringing that, oh, the slaves are fighting. The slaves are in revolt. And these white men got their guns that they had right there with them and took off to hunt those who were fighting for their own freedom. I would like to revise and extend my remarks, by the way, about militia and when they're reliable. Okay. They're reliable when they're um, fighting to oppress Black people specifically. Because the Shays Rebellion thing is about white people, right? Militia not so reliable. And we don't care, right? That's the militia response to Shays Rebellion. Eh, you know what? Government schmelbergant, you know? But then, when is a militia really reliable? Right here. Right here. Right there. Right there. Um, We see that consistently, how the militia is called upon and how responsive the militias are to slave revolts. They are there. My mother used to say, Johnny on the spot. Mm -hmm. They are there. Um, and, And so you have George Mason talking about and recall that during the war, uh, the North was trying to get us to arm our our, our slaves. Um, and so, you know, we can't rely upon them. You know, we have to have the militia to be able to, to, to put down these revolts. And there had been a series of revolts in Virginia before the big ones that we often think about, Mm -hmm. which is Denmark VC and Nat Turner. There had been a series of these revolts prior to um, the the Constitutional Convention. So, Carol, I'm going to pause us on this cliffhanger, and uh, we're going to take a short break. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Beta Brand. Now, there are a lot of good things about, you know, normality going back to work, going outside, you get to see people, you get to eat in a restaurant, but you also have to wear pants. Unless you're wearing Beta Brand's dress yoga pants. They're pants, but not real pants. They're yoga pants. They're stylish and polished, but with the comfort of your favorite loungewear. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are designed with a fit and flexibility of yoga pants, but they look like professional dress pants. They're so amazingly soft and stretchy and absolutely effortless, you can just throw on a pair, add a cute top, and you are set with style and comfort for the rest of your day. There are tons of different styles to choose from, straight leg, skinny, cropped, bootleg, and even more, and colors from classic black to fun prints like houndstooth, or as they call it, cat's tooth. They have a print that's sort of like hound's tooth, except it's little tiny cat heads. That is not the one that I got. I got a cool, like bright colored window pane plaid. Uh, Brady Brand's dress pant yoga pants are perfect for whatever you need to get done that day. Whether you're sitting at a desk for eight hours, though, please stand every 20 minutes or so working with kids and bending and kneeling all day, or maybe you're a photographer and you need to squat to get that perfect shot. Whatever the case, you're going to look good and feel great doing it. The pants are made of wrinkle resistant stretch knit fabric. They look great all day and travel amazing. Plus they're machine washable and don't need to be ironed and they have pockets. We're talking comfort and function. No more fake pockets that are sewn shut. These pants are designed for real women who need 
real pockets. New colors, patterns, and styles are coming out all the time. Be sure to keep an eye out for limited time new releases. They do sell out fast. While you're there, make sure to check out Beta Brand's ultra-flattering tops, skirts, dresses, and more. The dress pant yoga pants are just the tip of the iceberg. Right now, our listeners can get 30% off their Beta Brand orders when you go to betabrand.com slash WFLT. That's betabrand, B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com slash WFLT for 30% off your order for a limited time. And when you use our special URL, you are telling them you support our show too. Please tell them you support our show. Find out why women are ditching typical work pants for Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. Go to betabrand.com slash WFLT for 30% off. That's betabrand.com slash WFLT. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. We all love breakfast for dinner. Maybe you, like me, love breakfast any time of the day. What's great about it is it kind of starts your day over. But you don't always want to start your day over with a really heavy meal of like bacon and eggs. So you know what? Turn to Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is delicious. It helps you start your day over and it's good for you. Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net carbs per serving, only 140 calories per serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with the available flavors of cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon, and cookies and cream and maple waffle. Those were special edition flavors that are now back permanently. I like to mix my Magic Spoon cereals, and I think you should try cinnamon and maple waffle together. Yum. You can get all of these flavors at magicspoon.com slash WFLT, and be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5 off. And thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? You know, something interferes with my happiness on a pretty much daily basis. But also, you know, I go through stuff and everyone goes through stuff. So I personally believe that everyone should have a therapist. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You will begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime and you will get a thoughtful response. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available worldwide and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, though financial aid is available. There's a broad range of expertise which may not be available to you in your area. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, betterhelp.com slash friends. 
The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In case people have forgotten, we're at the exciting uh, debate over the ratification of the Constitution. And uh, Madison has introduced this idea of um, the militia being a part of the federal government. Correct? Yes, it's already in the draft Constitution. Yes. The South is not happy because they know or they suspect that those darn freedom-loving Northerners would not help them put down a slave rebellion if they were called upon to do so. Right? Oh yeah. Okay. They were they were afraid of that. They were afraid of that. So so where are we? So what what is what is what is the what is the twist here? What happens? And so what happens is is that George Mason starts pounding on the issue of having a bill of rights uh put in the constitution, these amendments that could curtail the power of the federal government and that would protect basically the militia. Mm. And so when you think about, and so, and they were very clear that if they didn't get that, that what they would do is that they would push really hard for a new constitutional convention. And what Madison was afraid of is that this would be Pandora's box and it would hurdle the United States right back to the unworkable years of the Articles of Confederation. Hmm. And so he's wants to make sure that he's got this bill of rights there and what he knows from the battles over the in the constitutional convention itself was that the South will play some serious hardball with the the being of the United States, with the the foundation of the United States, the existence of the United States. You know what? He wasn't so wrong to be afraid of that. I mean, a few years, you know, a hundred years later. Boom, right? Right? He's not wrong to be worried. He was not wrong to be worried at all. I mean, he smelled it. He smelled it. Um, So, I mean, this was they, they, when they, they wanted to get the three fist clause Mm -hmm. in order to get representation in government because the South was afraid that it didn't have enough people when it came to the House of Representatives, you know, where you count the number that that they didn't have enough people and they would always be outvoted in federal in the federal system. And so they demanded first they demanded, Lord, help me. They demanded that the enslaved be counted on on a full equality with whites, which led Elbridge Jerry to say, excuse me. I thought you said they were property. Uh, So so if they're on full equality with whites, they're citizens. Right. And they can vote. Why Mm. don't you give them the right to vote? And they were like, no, that's not what we say. And 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 then uh, another delegate said, excuse me. So then you count them for your state representation. Right. Mm. And they're like, 
No. They're like, so if you don't count them for the state, how on earth are you going to count them for the federal? And they said, let me tell you what, we don't get this. We don't at least get three fifths. We walk. We walk. Yeah. Ugh. Madison was used to the hard ball that the South would play. And so when uh, George Mason was like, and Patrick Henry, who hated James Madison from the depths and the breadth and the heights that his soul shall reach, hated him some James Madison. Mm. And Madison knew it. He was like, they will scuttle the United States of America. They will call up a new constitutional convention. I've got to get this bill of rights through the first Congress and get it ratified. And, and so Madison goes up to that first Congress and he's drafting these amendments because they're pouring in from all of the different states and he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's condensing them. And when you think about them, we end up with the freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to not have a state-sponsored religion, the right not to be illegally searched and seized, the right to a speedy and fair trial, the right not to have cruel and unusual punishment. The right to a well-regulated yeah, militia. It's so weird when you put it that way, Carol. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> For the security of a free state? Hmm. What? Yeah. What? This if one is, of these things is not like the other, I feel like. Yeah, one of these things is not like the other. This is the bribe to the South, to the Southern anti-federalists, to mollify them so that they are are comfortable enough with the constitution, comfortable enough with the protections of slavery so that they won't scuttle the United States of America. It's basically, we're going to enumerate all these rights for the first time in history, which is kind of cool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there are natural rights, such as the, the natural rights of what they think of as man, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to express yourself. These are all, again, sort of this language of God-given. And then you get to militia. <laughs> right? Right? Which isn't such a natural right. Like, it's, you know, you aren't born with a militia. <laughs> and so and, it's and- there specifically... So yes. we're going to list all these rights that we believe are available to everyone under God. And then also, hey, South, we're going to give you the right to beat the shit out of anyone you want. Right. And so sitting here in our Bill of Rights is the right to control and contain and destroy the rights of Black people. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So one thing I thought about as you unpack this in your book is sort of, again, to to flash to the current debates over the Second Amendment, a lot of them are about, was it, is it intended to be about militia? Is this about arming a militia or is it about arming an individual, right? right. All these debates, all these legal scholarship about that. And I know you're not claiming to be the utmost, you know, legal scholar here, but the, to follow the history of your argument, mm-hmm. it seems like it's intentionally unclear, Right. That it's they're not trying to make it for sure. Oh, this is definitely about a well-regulated militia or this is definitely about an individual right to bear arms. They're saying, like, "Eh, whatever you need to do, South, like uh, just here, like whatever you need this Second Amendment to be, we're going to let you do it. And see, I I read that most more as um, to be able to arm individual men to be able to be in a well-regulated militia. 
Right. Um, and so I think about Madison's uh, initial draft of the Second Amendment, what we call the Second Amendment now, um, where he's like, unless you have a conscientious objection to bearing an arm to bearing arms, then you don't have to be in this well-regulated militia. See, and that's also kind of a mindfuck too, right? That's not the way we think about it. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> they were right. carving out the initial idea was to carve out the right to not participate. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And 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 then when the Senate committee got a hold of it, they're like, no, nah, get rid of this conscientious objection stuff. Right. Because what they were also afraid of is that you had this argument. You had a couple of arguments going on. One is that this conscientious objection thing that would lead the, the North to say everybody's a conscientious objector to this. And so the South would be left defenseless. Uh-huh. They're like, uh-uh. And, and you also had um, during, and I'm going back again, to, just... during the Virginia ratification debates, you had, uh, I can't remember, it was George Mason or Patrick Henry arguing that what would happen is the, just what we saw happening in the war for rev- the Revolutionary War was that these black men would be enlisted in the army and being given their freedom. And they said, could you imagine under a federal structure that would control the militia, they would bring all black men into the military and they would get their freedom. That is absolutely objectionable. Yeah. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When it comes to looking for a job, most people would agree that the whole thing is not fun. In fact, here are some things I'd rather do than look for a job. Um, Bake in the Texas heat. Um, Figure out a tech issue with my computer. Eat dry, salty crackers in that Texas heat with no water around. Or maybe unclog a sink drain. But it doesn't have to be this way. ZipRecruiter gets it. They've actually figured out how to make the job search process better and easier. When you sign up at ZipRecruiter.com slash easy, you can create a free profile. Then you get matched to great jobs and a lot more. ZipRecruiter will proactively pitch your profile to employers whose jobs match your experience. Unlike with other job sites, if an actual person from the company really likes what they see, they can personally invite you to apply for that job. Candidates who are invited to apply on ZipRecruiter are nearly three times as likely to get hired. This is according to over 10,000 logged ZipRecruiter users who report being hired through ZipRecruiter in September and October of 2020. Plus, if you like that job you're matched to, you can apply to it and many others with just one click. It's that easy. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job site in the U.S. So what are you waiting for? If you want an easier job search, sign up for free right now on ZipRecruiter.com slash easy. Once again, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash easy today to sign up absolutely free and put ZipRecruiter to work for you. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Monk Pack. Let's face it. Most healthy snacks don't taste very good. They don't fill you up and they don't satisfy your cravings. 
Our sponsor, Monk Pack, makes snacks that satisfy a sweet tooth, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars have just one gram of sugar, just two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're the perfect snack for anyone trying to eat healthier or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. They're great after a workout for a job well done, or I take them hiking and, you know, just eat them when I'm hungry. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars are the perfect balance of sweet and salty, crunchy from nuts and seeds, but still soft and chewy. You can get them in tasty flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. You may have noticed all the ones I read have saltiness to them. Those are my favorites. They're keto-friendly, gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fat, sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. Now, you should get a subscription to make sure you don't run out of your favorite flavors. It saves you 10% on every order and ships automatically. Try them for yourself and see. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase with any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering code WFLT at checkout. Monkpack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's monkpack, M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter code WFLT to save 20% at checkout off your purchase. Monkpack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Hi. If you're enjoying With Friends Like These, I want to tell you about another show I think you'll really like, 70 Million, an investigative documentary podcast from LWC Studios. Did you know there are 70 million Americans with criminal records? Not me. Also, I didn't know there was something called offender-funded justice. That's when legal systems are largely funded by fines levied against people who are arrested even before they're tried. Through 70 Million's deeply reported episodes, we can gain a deeper understanding of our country's intertwined legal systems. Now, so far, over three seasons, the Peabody-nominated narrative series has chronicled how remarkable people around the U.S. have transformed legal systems and entire communities in the process. In season four, 70 Million will look at how police, jails, and prisons have become the catch-all for unattended social problems and forgotten populations. It will tackle the big questions we must answer as a society about who we are and who we pretend to be when it comes to achieving liberty and justice for all. Season four launches on September 13th. Take a listen and subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcast. For more, visit 70millionpod.com. That's 70millionpod.com. Carol, well, you and I have talked for almost an hour and we've gotten all the way up to almost the 1800s. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, we had to get the foundation yeah, we did. right we did. And, and, for and the of second amendment. And of course, we can crowdfund our like 10 uh, episode podcast series on each extra, each decade in American Ooh. history as it applies um, to the Bill of Rights and anti-Blackness. But I'm going to have to fast forward us just a little bit. Definitely. So the first place that I have, as far as like, I think we might want to stop our time machine is in Oakland, California. Uh, with Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. They're driving along. They have some shotguns with them, as I recall. Tell us about, tell us about the, 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 when this is and what happens. So this is in Oakland, California in 1967. Um, and 
What has happened is that the Oakland police have just been brutalizing the Black community, brutalizing that Black community, beating up folk, shooting folk, just, and there's no accountability in the system, none. And so the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense arises out of this sense of the lack of accountability. And UEP Newton is a law student, and he knows the law about open carry. And he's like, we are getting ready to police the police. And so they figure out what kinds of guns they can actually have, how they have to carry those guns, how those guns are have to be loaded. Um, and they know also how far away they have to stand from the police when the police are making an arrest. Mm-hmm. And and they are policing the police. They are standing there open carrying with their guns and the police are not liking this at all. Oh, I recall they have some things to say, don't they? Aren't they yelling some things as well? <laughs> oh, the 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 cops are are just like <sighs> <laughs> You damn, what makes you think you got a right to a damn gun? Get what you do with these MF guns? And, and it's like, man, these are my guns. I know the damn law. And 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 just start spewing California code at the cops. Spitting the code. Cops, They're spitting, spitting code. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the cops are like, damn. Um, and and so they um run to Don Mulford, who is a re- a, a, a conservative uh, assemblyman in the California legislature and say, look, we need your help with these Black Panthers. Um, every time we pull them over, they're legally carrying. You know, they've got these 45s, they've got these shotguns, but they're they're not sawed off shotguns. And the way that they're open care, openly carrying them, does, it does not violate the law. They're legal. How do we make them illegal? We need your help. Mm. And Mulford's like, yeah, I'm there. And starts, <laughs> right, and starts writing the law. And he gets help from an NRA representative in crafting this law that bans open carry in California. And you've got Ronald Reagan uh, as governor of California writing, I'm eagerly awaiting this piece of legislation to hit my desk. I will eagerly sign it. So, you know, we often think of this kind of constellation of the conservatives of being pro-gun, except when you've got black folks carrying guns like the Panthers, they're like, oh, no, we're not having that. Mm -hmm. We are not having that. And when you think about it, the, the, the genesis for this was the massive police brutality raining down on the black community. But you didn't see any kind of legislation coming up in there about how to rein in the cops and to make the cops accountable for that violence, for that extraordinary, extraneous violence. Instead, it was how do we stop the Black Panthers? It is, I believe, always a good rule of thumb in American history to to when you see a restrictive law, ask, who are they trying to oppress? Mm. Right? Yes. In almost every restrictive law there is, from from laws regarding sex work to drug laws to uh, licensing of hair salons, um, as much as I'm a, you know, I am a a commie pinko simp and I love government. I really do. (laughs) (laughs) But... You have to look at all of our history through that lens, I think, you know, or at least ask that question. 
And your book pointed out something that I hadn't thought about before, because, again, I'm happy to have the government regulate stuff. That seems like a good idea to me most of the time. But if I look, if I remember the story of the Black Panthers and I remember the story of the Bill of Rights and then I think about gun laws and I think even a law like not allowing felons Mm. to own firearms. Carol, I'm embarrassed to say I've never really thought about that as being an anti-Black law. But guess what? (laughs) When you decide felons can't own firearms, who are you saying can't own firearms? Particularly when we have criminalized blackness. Yes, all those other things um, that we've we've regulated and right? criminalized. Yeah, right. When we have criminalized blackness, um, that then makes the the felons can't bear arms uh, an anti-black provision. Mm-hmm. It it is a way of making that disproportionately black, um, and and this is what we see happening. Um, and so. The power of these laws is that they are often coded in this language of safety and security. Um, This is what we're bringing, safety and security to the American people. Look how we are protecting you. Mm -hmm. And what we're actually seeing is look at how we're protecting you from Black people because Black people are the threat. Black people are who are dangerous in this society. Look how we are protecting you from them. Mm-hmm. And also you point out um, laws against guns in public housing is another law that winds up being de facto anti-Black. Absolutely. I mean, and this was the thing is about seeing the ways that these laws worked Um and seeing then who is disproportionately affected by them. Um, and I'm so one of the other laws that I looked at, as you can tell, I, I moved us all the way up into the 21st century. Yeah. So to go from the, the 1600s to the 21st century. Woo, Our podcast uh, series that's just about every decade is going to have to be longer than 10 episodes. So we'll just have to come <laughs> back around on that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll write up a treatment. I'll get back to you. But yes, bring us up to the 21st century. <laughs> Is that, you know, so you think about the law and stand your ground, mm-hmm. right? This is a law that is supposedly a, a, one of the hallmarks of the Second Amendment, the right to self-defense. And what has happened with this law is that what it does is it expands the castle doctrine. The castle doctrine is when you, it says somebody who comes into your home, an intruder, you have the right to defend yourself, to expel that intruder, to, to, to neutralize that threat. The stand your ground says anywhere where you have a right to be. Hmm. Ooh. And if you perceive a threat, you have the right to defend yourself. Well, you know, so if I'm at, if I'm at the grocery store, if I'm in a parking lot, if I'm at church, if I'm at work, places where I have a right to be and I perceive a threat. Well, when black is the default threat in this society. Mm-hmm. This is why we're seeing the kind of disproportionate. So this, what I mean by disproportionate, when whites kill blacks understand your ground, they are 10 times more likely to walk under justifiable homicide than when blacks kill whites, 10 times more likely understand your ground. Mm-hmm. When whites kill blacks understand your ground, there's, they have a 281% chance of, they're 
more likely to walk under justifiable homicide than when whites kill whites. Mm. When blacks are the victims of this violence, because they are seen as the threat, it makes it justifiable. I want to stand up and turn around and look back at all that history that we somewhat fast forwarded over. Yeah. Because I think it's really important to, I want us to to land somewhere that I think that you do bring us to in the book, which is the recognition of the incredible resilience, mm. grace, and fortitude of Black people in America and how hard they've fought for this country and the ideas of this country, even when admit they were fighting the country. You recount story after story after story, all these stories. Again, I thought I knew some American history. These stories of revolts and uprisings, just mm-hmm. from before we were a country up until everyone remembers a year ago, and of course since then too. Black people have have, have taken their rights seriously and fought for them whenever it's yes. whenever necessary. Yes. Yes. Um, I've got to say this was a hard book to write um, because I was writing it in the midst of the pandemic and in the midst of a wave of police killings of black people. Um, and in the midst of the, the assault on our voting rights And so seeing all of this work that Black people had done to fight for this democracy, to make it live up to its ideas, to make its aspirations real, um, and all of the terror and the bloodshed, um, you know, so in this book, you see, I'm talking about Red Summer of 1919, um, and like in Elaine, Arkansas, where you have black folks who were sharecroppers and and who had their wages stolen from them. And so they had the audacity to try to organize a labor union, to join a union. And for that, and and the 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 white landowners found out about it and sent a scouting party up there to disrupt the meeting, to break it up. And the black folks said, if white folks find out about this, they're going to kill us. And so they had set sentries out in front of the church where they were organizing. And there was an exchange of gunfire as that scouting party came up. And a white man was killed and another white man was wounded. And the word got back. Black folks are trying to kill all of the white people here in Elaine, Arkansas. They're trying to kill all of the white people here in Phillips County. No, they're trying to get paid for their labor. And they're trying to defend themselves against violence. It got so intense that they called in, uh, the governor called in the U.S. Army that brought in machine guns that had been used in the war in France and began machine gunning down Black people. And yet. And yet. Yes, and yet. there the, Again, grace, resilience, fortitude to keep fighting 
to keep fighting. And again, I just, I get, I thought I knew about the slave rebellions and uprisings that had happened in America, but clearly there are, you tell so many stories that I knew, and I bet there are even more stories. There are stories we don't know because the stories of the uprisings aren't good for, for, for history. They're not good for us. <laughs> Me speaking as a white person. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think that this is part of the reason why we're seeing that incredible backlash uh, against the 1619 project and that and the the, the way that it gets cast as critical race theory. Mm. Uh, And I'm like, you are not teaching kindergartners critical race theory. I guarantee it. You know, um, but it is, you know, when they say we want a patriotic history, um, that means that you've got these flattened two dimensional heroic figures um, who are just making great decisions all the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, so they, they their their humanity and their humanness is stripped from them. We don't see them in their full embodied selves, making good decisions and bad decisions and dealing with the consequences of those decisions. If we don't have Patrick Henry and George Mason talking about we will be left defenseless, we don't have that Second Amendment in there. Mm. That is talking about the right to a well-regulated militia for the security of a free state. I think some people, maybe even good well-meaning white people, get itchy when um, we call something that used to be called a riot and uprising. Uh, this book really helped me understand why we do do that. Mm-hmm. Because it's something I said a little, little bit ago, which is that what I see in this book is a history of black people fighting for the ideals of America, even when it means fighting America. Right? Yes. Like, yes. Standing yes. up for the rights that we, we white people have always taken for granted and saying, no, these are ours, even when it means taking up arms against fellow Americans. I, that sounds maybe rough. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to put this in the best way I know how. No, no, it, it is. Um, and so this has been also part of the, um, the, the, the strategies of how do we fight? And so one of the reasons why I think the, the civil rights movement ends up on its iconic status, mm-hmm. besides it being like incredibly awesome, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is because it went after that narrative of Black people as being inherently dangerous and violent and right. criminal by deploying that nonviolent strategy. Um, And allowing the cameras, that new technology of television, um, to be able to show the violence of Jim Crow, to physically see the violence of Jim Crow, that it wasn't just these laws that were eviscerating, creating civic death in Black folk, but it was the way that it created a violent death as well. Mm Um, and, and, and to see, so when you see white people beating up black folks who aren't swinging back, then it was like, Ooh, I mean, it was like cognitive dissonance, a national cognitive dissonance. This isn't making sense. Whites are, are law abiding. They're freedom loving. Um, and black people are the dangerous ones. And so the image that we were seeing in the civil rights movement, um, just, flip that upside down. And that's why the Panthers then became so uh, 
They became what what J. Edgar Hoover called the most dangerous um, um, organization in American society. Uh, you know, pu basically public enemy number one were, were the Black Panthers because you had black men and black women carrying guns mm -hmm. and 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 being unequivocal about their rights. Which again, if it was Clive and Bundy, right? Mm. Like it's okay. See, that's why I mean, I, I like I get yes. weird about saying this about saying like they fight for their rights. You know, black people fight for their rights even when it fights against other Americans. Because I don't want to make it. I don't want to play into this idea that black people are dangerous or black people aren't whatever. But I feel like we it, popular culture lionizes white people who stand up against the government. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it, I mean you and, know? and you think of, think about the the insurrection on January sixth. Oh well, yes. <laughs> Speaking of, Ooh. yeah, sure. Ooh. I mean, Ooh. we've been. I mean, that that story. I mean, it's almost cliche to say what would have happened if it had been black people. But the thing is, like, I just, I wish, I just. And, and we know because when remember the Black Lives Matter protest in in D.C. where they called out every federal force available, mm -hmm. including folks from the Bureau of Prisons, mm -hmm. uh, um, all in uniform, riot geared up, um, thinking about how to deploy kind of, of weapons that would, would heat up the skin. Yeah. Right. I mean, black people as dangerous. It just, uh, black, it just yeah. bothers me that white people, that black people shouldn't have to be so noble. <laughs> Like, you know, oh, preach. I mean, <laughs> like, right. you shouldn't, it shouldn't just have to be, I mean, white people get called heroic, even if they're not necessarily nonviolent. So, you know, what it let's takes. Take, <laughs> let's take the case, you know, in this book, I talk about Kyle Rittenhouse. Yes. Yes. Right. Exactly. Who, who is the white sad story. Very sad story. Yeah. But 17 year old who crosses state lines with an illegally obtained AR-15 um, goes to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where there is a protest going on because of the shooting of Jacob Blake seven times in the back by police. And so there is a protest happening there. And so the cops see this this white teenager with this AR-15 and they welcome him. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, oh, we really appreciate you guys being here. It's hot out here. You want some water? Um, and then he goes and gets into altercations and he shoots down three men, killing two of them and seriously wounding a third. He walks back to the cops with his hands up as if to surrender. And the cops go right by him. They don't see threat. Juxtapose that to 12-year-old Tamir Rice, who is the black child in Cleveland who is playing alone in the park with a toy gun. Now, granted, it doesn't have the orange tip on it that says, hey, I'm a toy. But Ohio is an open carry state. And so it says, as long as you're not pointing the weapon at somebody, you can openly carry it. So there's nobody in the park. He's not threatening anybody. The cops roll up and within two seconds of their arrival, they shoot him down. And the police say, we were afraid he was threatening, he was dangerous. How is a 12 year old with a toy gun dangerous and threatening, but a 17 year old with an AR-15 in the middle of a crowd, not? anti-blackness.
Carol, it is always, I, I don't like that we have so much to talk about when you come on the show, um, <laughs> but I do love talking to you. Oh. And I uh, can't recommend your book highly enough. It is called The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Thank you again. Just thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Uh, oh, definitely. Thank you so much for having me, Anne-Marie. Thank you. And that is it for the show. Once again, we were talking to Carol Anderson, author of many, many good books, but most recently, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. I don't have much to add this week, so I'll just say the usual. Everyone out there, you, take care of yourselves. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.